This is Dr. Randolph Shippon with American Unity Radio, AmericanUnityRadio.com. And I'm here with Mr. Leo in Car City. And uh, Leo, who's six years old, and I were just discussing something that um, is really important. So we were talking about possible desserts, right? And what if I were to tell you that um, a dessert that you could have tonight would be cookies and mustard? Ew! What about um, broccoli with jelly beans? <laughs> well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What, what's, what's so gross about broccoli with jelly beans if you could also have um, ice cream with fart sauce? <laughs> Is that gross? Yeah. You wouldn't want ice cream with fart sauce? <laughs> so nasty. Well, listen, the reason we're talking about that is that you can say some really shocking things, right? Shocking things. And you will always get people's attention, right? And so so anytime I would say like, oh, Leo, do you want to have ice cream? And he'd be like, yeah, sure, I guess, whatever, ice cream. But if I say something like, can I offer you a booger throw up Sunday. <laughs> that's really gross, right? And that's definitely going to get your attention, right? Like you would not ignore that. If somebody says to you, "Leo, come eat your throw up sauce." <laughs> nobody is going to ever just dis- you're not going to be uh um distracted by anything else but that, right? Because that's so shocking, right? Do you yeah. understand the principle? So we're going to talk about somebody who does that, and we're going to talk about that with the man who predicted it in September of 2015, who would be the next president of the United States, and that's my mentor, Ron Klein. As soon as he saw everybody line up on stage, he said to his class, which I was in at the time, along with two of my colleagues from my practice, Who do you think on that stage of, I think it was almost 20 people, uh, of Republican candidates is going to be the next president in the United States? And everybody took their guesses. And he said, the next president of the United States is Donald John Trump. Mark my words. And I did. I actually wrote down his words when he said it. And uh, I didn't even embarrass him with it when I just recorded the segment that I had with him. So... Uh, he's going to tell you a story about distraction. And I think you ought to listen to it because he is probably my most influential mentor, hands down. So please enjoy the conversation with Mr. Ron Klein. And you know what, Leo? Uh, Ron Klein and I did not have when we uh, sat down to talk with each other. No. We did not have hot chocolate with hot sauce in it. Actually, that's really good. All right, join us on American Unity Radio, Mr. Ron Klein, hypnosis mentor extraordinaire on the American presidency and where we are as a country. Hannah Grace, say hi to my audience. Hi. Okay, Leo, say hi. Hi. And we'll see you on the program. Join- bye. <laughs> join us anytime. Hannah, say bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>
Bye-bye. Join us on the program. All right. Don't go anywhere. Bye. Welcome to American Unity Radio. This is Randolph Chapon, and I am here with Ron Klein, who is known to, I believe, and tell me if I'm exaggerating, more than 10,000 or 12,000 at this point students of hypnosis have learned clinical hypnosis from you. Does that sound even close to true? Well, I was just talking to somebody on the phone um, just before you called to ask me if I would uh, do this with um, podcast with you, and I, I I told him that I had just done a tally on my database. It's it's eighty eight hundred and twenty six students on uh, eighty eight twenty six. My God, that's amazing. Well, congratulations, and and all of us, many of us are returners. Many of us have come to you year year after year uh, because we just we felt that there was always more to absorb and uh, that you were always uh, innovating and, and uh, uh, showing us newer uh, techniques. So uh, thank you so much for for your work and and all that you've given to us. You're more than welcome. I I, I am a uh, compulsive teacher and. Uh, I get a great deal of joy and 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 gratification by by being able to share whatever it is that that I know with other people. That's well, it's tremendous. Now you've been doing it for how many years? I think this is this will be forty two. Forty two years of teaching people how to uh, quickly achieve change and to help others quickly achieve change in their life. Yeah? Yes. I, I, my, what I'm most interested in doing, I, although I do work occasionally with people in, on individually, is uh, acting as a teacher, knowing that, that what I'm passing on to my students is something that they can can benefit not only for themselves, but also dealing with their patients or their clients in uh, as agents of change themselves. And uh, as you have, uh, you've been teaching, what are some of the things that you've noticed uh, that have been changing over the 42 years that you've been te- teaching in our society? Are we... Are we better communicators and influencers uh, necessarily at this point in our lives, or are we are we falling behind with those skills? Uh, do we have any learning to do uh, from the from the traditions of uh, Ericksonian hypnosis, neurolinguistic programming, and just common human decency in this country? Well, I I have no way of judging in terms of the general population of this country. My my ambition is that the procedures and ways of thinking, uh, the, the techniques that I teach my students for them to facilitate change in their clientele uh, is what I think of as my legacy. 
uh, in terms of the country at large, I have I I, I think that would be a little grandiose for me to to evaluate. I don't I don't have that data, unfortunately. Oh, I I understand that you're taking a scientific approach, but I I am interested in symbolism, sir. And you know that some of the biggest uh, uh, um, ideas in our world are symbols. And it doesn't occur to you, maybe, but but, uh, it occurs to me that you're very proud um, uh, because you put the name uh, America right in the name of your organization. You're very proud of this country. That's very true. Yeah. And I did the same thing with an organization that I started. And and so I I think I patterned it after you because I admire you so much for your patriotism. Well, that's very nice of you to say. I I believe I am patriotic. I I care a great deal about this country. I've been a part of this country for 87 years. And... uh, I, I don't know if I if I have ever told you I I served in the military, which I often think about nowadays because the veterans in this country are having such a hard time, particularly with the with the uh, post office slowdown. That uh, is, in my personal opinion, abominable. That the post office is being politicized when. The post, the making sure that people in this country can communicate with one another goes all the way back to our founding and is part of our Constitution. So I, I care a great deal about that. I, I, I've been occasionally thinking about the fact that I, I took that oath to, to defend the Constitution from all enemies, both foreign and domestic as a very young man, but my attitude is that the oath has never ex- expired and never will expire and will go with me to uh, to grave, which I, I'm hoping will be in Arlington as a veteran. I um, want you to know that I have deep admiration for that, for your service, as well as um, your translation of the oath as a never-ending oath, because as a Freemason uh, myself, I know that the founding fathers, many of them were Freemasons, and oaths were forever. And so what I want to ask you a little bit about, if you don't mind sharing with us, is what do do, do you mind sharing with us uh, where you served or what you did? Yeah, I was I was drafted uh, <clears throat> toward the end of the Korean War, and um, I I don't know if how many of your listeners have been in the military, but uh, when I finished the basic training, um, I was on orders to go to Korea, and uh, just as we were getting ready to leave the basic training at Fort Jackson, uh, a sergeant came into the room and said, does anybody speak a foreign language? 
And I had gone to high school in France and spoke fairly fluid French. And I piped up and said that I, I speak French. And it's, he said, fine, then you follow me. And there were a couple other young men who said they spoke various languages. And we followed this guy. And I thought and was hoping, because my father still lived in Paris, that I would end up being stationed in France and get to speak French and get to visit with my father easily. And it would be even more wonderful if I got stationed in Paris. And when I got off of the troop ship and got onto the train and I said to somebody in authority, I said, where are we going? And they said, we're taking you to Germany. And I thought, (laughs) that that certainly makes sense. That's the army way. I speak French. They're sending me to Germany. (laughs) <laughs> and were you so stationed, I, I, you were stationed there? Yeah, I, I went through basic training, and then uh, when I got to Germany, um, there was an opportunity to volunteer for uh, special training for something uh, which some of your uh, listeners who are military know what this is. But I was uh, part of, after doing 16 weeks of, of of training, in addition to the basic training, I became part of what's known as long-range reconnaissance. And uh, in the event that we had come to some sort of conflict, and my role and the team that I was part of would be to infiltrate behind enemy lines and organize local uh, guerrilla fighters. Uh, And luckily, of course, at that time, Russia was our main adversary in Europe. And uh, luckily, uh, it it didn't come to that. And so I served in Germany and then then was was discharged in uh, uh, and my, I served two years and then was discharged, transported back to New York City and then back to Washington, D.C. I, I had uh, been going to college in Baltimore, and I, I was drafted because I decided that I was going to take a vacation after my my bachelor's degree. I was going to take a vacation for a year or so before I decided what to wanted to do with the rest of my life, and I got caught up in the drafts, so that that's how I ended up in the military. Wow, wow! And let me ask you, uh, what drew you to change work? What drew you to to the field of of uh, of, of hypnosis and psychology and uh, influence and persuasion? What drew you to that? Well, I, I was going through a personal transition. In, in my in my life, uh, my first wife and I had separated and were heading toward divorce. And I decided that I needed to talk to somebody about what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. I was, I was feeling sort of at, at, at odds. I didn't know where my future 
was going to take me in. So I was referred to a therapist by the name of H.D. Johns, J-O-H-N-S. And he, when I met with him the first time, he told me that he practiced transactional analysis now, what uh, was known as TA. And I didn't know what the heck that was. I had no idea. I was just looking for somebody to talk over my uh, concerns about what I was going to do with the rest of my life. And um, part of his practice was to invite his uh, patients to participate in a a three-day course called Transactional Analysis 101. And it was an introduction. The idea was that you were, as as the patient, you were supposed to be knowledgeable in the methodology so that you could participate in it more thoroughly. So I took the TA-101 and found it fascinating and continued in my individual work with him. And since I expressed such an interest, he invited me to consider taking the next course, which was Transactional Analysis 202. (laughs) And uh, part of that was to uh, not only take some classwork, but to participate in a therapy group where each person got an opportunity to practice being the therapist as we were learning about transactional analysis. And uh, I became more and more fascinated in that. And uh, at the end of that, there, there was an invitation to become a transactional analyst oneself. And only mental health licenses back in those days were for clinical psychologists and psychiatrists. And there there were marriage and family therapists and there were counselors and there were transactional analysts and and there were lay analysts who were some of which were Freudian analysts, but there was no licensure for any of those people, including myself practicing. and so I began to practice as a transactional analysis. And then uh, Dr. Johns invited me to take the next level course, which was TA-303. <laughs> and the uh, course comprised not only of his teaching, but he would invite other people to come and teach a weekend course. And one of the weekend courses was taught by a psychiatrist by the name of Henry Merritt, M.D., and he was a hypnotist. And I just was absolutely fascinated by the hypnosis, and I asked him if he would mentor me, and he said that he was from Jacksonville, Florida. And so I said, well, I'm I'm on the loose. I'm not working. I'm... Um, a free agent, can I come to Jacksonville, Florida, and you'll teach me? And he said, yes. So for the next four months, I moved into a hotel in Jacksonville, Florida, and he mentored me on an individual basis. And at the end of that, um, I came back to the Washington area, 
And in one of the TA weekend courses, I mentioned that I had studied with uh, this fellow down in Florida, and a, a group of the people who were in the group class asked me if I would teach them what I had learned. And I said, uh, with a great deal of trepidation and honesty, that the idea of teaching terrified me, that I didn't, I, I just learned this material. I, I didn't think that I should have the audacity is to think that I could teach it. And they said something that just gave me a little courage. They said, yeah, but you know the material and we don't, so there's no way that we can evaluate whether or not you know what you're talking about. <laughs> so... What a brilliant I, thing I, to I, say. I, what a brilliant, I, what I had, a gift. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I had rented at that time a little office to do individual transactional analyst counseling, and it had. I got. I, I rented some folding chairs, and there were seven people who came, and I taught them what I had learned. And I found okay. out number one that it it it's fun to teach, and number two that I that I really got over my shyness about it, and uh, and that sort of was the beginning of my career as a teacher. The only may, other... I, may, I, may I interrupt you just for a second? Sure. Because you're my teacher, and I want to say that I have often wondered at how cool it would be to do what you do. And that's something that teachers should hear. I, I feel like not enough teachers in this country hear that. That you're you have students who are very accomplished. You have all kinds of people coming to your classes. You have psychologists like me, psychiatrists, dentists, you have doctoral you have medical doctors, nurses, chiropractors. I think there was a rolfer at one point, but I, I so many people have come to study with you. 8,700, 8, 8,500, what did you say? I think it was 8,826. 8,826. That's tremendous. And you are doing your teaching in exactly the same way that H.T. John strung, strung, strung you along. <laughs> because you very ethically tell your classes you just completed this course the next course might or might not happen right which is always a truism it might or might not happen and I would like to point out to you that I am 87 years old and this might be a limited time engagement and I have always thought that your mastery of scarcity as a pattern and then telling that to your students while you did it was brilliant. Excuse me. Uh, that's not, not that's not a sales technique. It, it's, it's a truism. Well, it's a truism and it is... It is because it's a truism that it's effective because nobody sitting in that room is stupid. 
you happen not to have any stupid students, I think, for the most part, I'm going to say 99.9% of your, stu- your students over the years have never been stupid people. I, I, don't think, I don't think I've ever had a stupid I've, – I've never perceived anybody that's ever come to one of my classes as being stupid. And so I you can't – I have perceived things about a few students that I will not talk to you about on air. Yeah. <laughs> but what I'm saying – Let me just put it this way. They're out of the 8,800 and so, there have been a few who have been challenging. Let's put it that way. Okay. But it, with all of that said, those are tremendous odds. Like, you know, Pareto's rule, the Italian economist Pareto said, look, your, your basic odds are one in five. One in five of your people is going to be a real problem. One in five is going to be a superstar. And the other three are somewhere in the middle, responsible for 80% of your aggravation or enjoyment, depending on how you want to look at it. And you're beating those odds by what? A selection process, by by having a natural love or reputation for material. What what do you think is causing you to beat the odds of of one in five at Apple? Well, I I haven't the foggiest. Hmm. Well, I think it's your tremendous teaching style, and I think it's your tremendous knowledge, and more than anything, your tremendous caring concern for every human being that you come into contact with in your training. I, but that's just one person's opinion. I mean, what do I know? Ask the other 8,700. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you a question, teacher. How do we fix this country? Well, um, before we went on air, you, you alluded to that. And how how is it possible that uh, that we that we are where we are, and and what did the main character in this Shakespearean play do to get there? Hmm. And I uh, just <clears throat> thinking about that, and one of the things that I that I do, uh, uh, not not professionally, obviously, and and but I, I think I do a, a few magic manipulations, or what are referred to as magic tricks, pretty well. And one of the magic tricks that I love to do is is a close up trick where a person is standing or sitting right in front of me, and I can take a quarter or a 50-cent coin and hold it between my thumb and forefinger on my left hand and grab it out of the left hand with my right hand. And when I open my right hand... there's nothing there. And that that particular manipulation, or what the magicians call prestidigitation, can be done 
well and successfully and it entertains the person who's watching or it can be done clumsily and it's 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 a sort of so what and the thing that makes a difference is that as the magician grasps the coin with his right hand having held it between the forefinger and the thumb of the left hand, unbeknownst to the viewer, the coin drops into the palm of the left hand. And as the magician moves the right hand away from the left hand, he wiggles his fingers, which draws the viewer's attention to the right hand where there is no coin. So that when the magician opens his right hand, it looks like it's disappeared. When in fact, it's still in the left hand. But while the viewer's eyes are distracted to the wiggling right hand fingers, the magician drops the coin into his pocket, unnoticed by the viewer, on the left side of his pad. And then he opens both hands, and there's no coin there at all. Now, I think that that is the art that the President of the United States has mastered. Now, he doesn't wiggle his fingers. But as soon as he does something that's audacious, so audacious that people are gasped, he immediately doesn't want anything that's audacious before you can catch your breath. Yeah. And it's, it, 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 it's one thing after another that distracts you and keeps you following the wiggling fingers. And soon, whatever was the most audacious thing of all is left behind in, in a metaphoric cloud of dust, it disappears from from one's attention. There's a there's a phenomena in psychology known as the rule of seven plus or minus two chunks of information can be contained in mind simultaneously. So some people can hold on to five fairly easily. Some people can hold on to six or seven or eight. And many people, most of us can many times hold on to nine pieces of information simultaneously, like a, like a phone number is nine pieces of information. And you might wonder, well, why don't phone numbers have 10 numbers? The reason is that they, somewhere along the line, understood that most of us can handle nine chunks of information, and anything beyond that is difficult to hold on to. Well, if you have average, yes, I'm sorry, teacher, but it's the average. Uh, it's the average that you can get. It's a little above average, but it's you know it's a chunk of information that you can retain on the Wechsler test when you do the digits forward um, uh, part of the the IQ test. 
digits forward, most people get about that range on yeah. numbers that can yeah. be remembered, just like you said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and so if, if there's one distraction after another and one audacious outlandish thing after another, that, uh, you, you, you can remember, well, you know, he did that and then he did that and then he did that and then he did that, but pretty soon there's so many that you that you lose consciousness. And then occasionally somebody will mention something and you say, oh yeah, I remember that happened, but it's been out of your awareness. Yeah. And, and I think, I think that that's a very powerful technique. I uh, would like to tell you because, that I... Okay, go ahead, continue, and then I want to mention well, the book to you. The, mm-hmm. the, the question that you asked me before we started recording was, how how does influence work? You know, I, I, I know how to do verbal influence. I know how to do hypnotic influence. And I, I don't... I'm, I'm, I'm sure that there is some hypnotic influence going on as well, but uh, I, I, I think the most important thing that occurs to me since you asked me for my opinion about how how is this influence being accomplished, I think it has more than anything else has to do with distraction. Yes, it's the way you described we, it. We, yeah, and so metaphorically, it's wiggling figures. Wiggling fingers. If, if if we were to call this episode Wiggling Fingers the hypnosis of Donald Trump, would you be satisfied? Say the question again. If we were to call this episode Wiggling Fingers, <laughs> would, would you be well, satisfied? Yeah, I mean, me- metaphorically, it's the art... Not the art of the, de- the his book was called the art of the deal. It's the, it's the art of distraction. Yes, the art of distraction at such an, a, a furious pace that essentially you've empowered the most powerful office in the world is occupied by somebody who knows that it just takes but so many things to distract you before you will forget about the other things because you're now paying attention to what I want you to pay attention to. Well, it's uh, the other part of this little magic trick metaphor is what happens to the coin? Hmm. The, 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 the viewer, the person who's looking at the magic trick is, is, it has a moment of amazement because the coin has disappeared. But meanwhile, the coin has been slipped into a pocket. So yeah. the real key is not just the distraction. It's what's happening while you're distracted that you don't notice at all. I see. So it's sort of the look over there, not over here. Because over here, this is where the real story is. The, the real story is the coin that is slipped into the pocket. 
So yeah. this metaphor would be even better if the magician in this story says to the to the person who is the audience, give me a coin. And the person mm-hmm. gives the magician the coin and does the wiggle finger trick <laughs> and puts the coin in his own pocket. That's, that's, that's right. That's the metaphor. That's the real trick here. Fantastic. Uh, a fantastic perspective. Um, also, I want to tell you, I was thinking about you on two occasions. The first occasion, I think about you often. I mention you in in every day I practice psychotherapy, you are probably mentioned at least once. And I practice psychotherapy five days a week. So you should know that you occupy a place in my mind and heart like a mentor. Uh, who is very much like my Uncle Leon, and I told you that uh, several years ago. You remind me of my Uncle Leon Leopold, who was kind of like a granddad to me growing up, and my son is named for Uncle Leon. So if that's any estimate of where you stand in my in my esteem, I, I just wanted to let you know all of that. Well, that, that's I, very, very extraordinarily kind, and, I, and I'm touched. I'm sincerely touched. Can I share a, a recent story that, that, that touched, touched me? Sure. A, a, a gal named Janet text, sent a text to me on the phone, and she said that I had had a, a tremendous influence on her and that she had been talking to me in one of the classes on a on a break, not not in front of the class, about how deep down inside she was very unhappy because people didn't seem to understand her. And she said in this text that my response to that had changed her life. And what I said to her apparently was, you need to accept the fact that nobody will ever fully understand you. Mm. And she said that that gave her a freedom that she had never experienced before. And I was so touched by that because I don't, I don't think that I've, could have possibly thought that saying that one sentence to her could have that much of an impact. And so I remember thinking to myself, God, part of why I teach is because I want to have an impact on the people who come to my classes. But sometimes over coffee on a break, you can just say something very rudimentary sounding to me and have a tremendous impact on someone because of the way they hear it. Not so much about what I meant to, to convey, but what she heard from that. I will, also, I, I will also tell you that I think that the way that you convey things, which is with a kindness, is um, extraordinarily impactful. And I think it's the kindness that we're missing from our national dialogue right now. We have become an us and a them state, 
and I think that we need to be a we state again. And uh, I, I think that uh, Donald Trump, if anything, is a master distractor and a master divider because he knows how to entertain. And the only way to entertain is to divide and conquer just like you would if you were at war. And so I, I believe in your kindness. I believe that you hold up an example of what being a patriot and a moralist because I've seen you in the moralist role and I have also seen you in the mentor role and you nourish us with kindness as well as your teaching. And I think that that's, that's really what's missing from the Oval Office. Well, yeah, a, a little kindness goes a long way. So I, I, I agree with you. Yeah. Uh, I, I just want to make sure that your audience knows that that I I am not perfect. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, oh, uh, perfection is aspirational, right? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I I mean I I I have been I have been on occasion in situations with a particular student at a particular time in class um, uh, caught up in in my imperfection and um, making some remark that afterwards I had wished that I had been a little kinder. But there have been a few times <laughs> where, where I have expressed my uh, positional and personal power with some uh, force, let me put it that way. Yeah. So, well, well it is, it is a, a, a sight to behold. I have only witnessed it ever once. And uh, I will say that when I got to behold it, I knew what righteousness was and I was uh, inspired. So thank you for letting me witness that. And Ron, thank you for the time on this call. I am so grateful that you were on the call. Uh, Ron, I always ask people this. If there's something that you want to give out as a message to people at the end of the broadcast, whether it's something that you're promoting, whether it's your organization, whether it's that you want people to, to do something in this world, something that, that you would like to say, go do it. What What is it? Well, you know, it's well, the, the first thing that occurs to me is, uh, is may sound trite, but for goodness sakes, uh, anybody who's listening to this, you, you will discover as you get older and older that time rushes faster and faster, and life is infinite. So find a way to experience love and joy in your life and and do do good work uh, I, I hope I have done that and in, in terms of a, co- a commercial yes my my I am a teacher of Ericksonian hypnosis and grief psychotherapy 
And the organization that I promote is the American Hypnosis Training Academy. And the webpage is www. A is an apple, H is in Harry, T is in Thomas, A is an apple, I is an ink, N is in Nancy, C is in Charlie. Dot com. That's A-H-T-A-I-N-C dot com. And there's a link there if you're a psychotherapist or an agent of change, a professional coach. Um, there's a link uh, to request a brochure. Fill out the form. You will be on the database. When COVID-19 is gone, I will be sending you invitations uh, to programs. And uh, my programs are mostly in the metropolitan Washington, D.C. area, although I do travel around the country from time to time, less nowadays than years ago. Uh, But once you're on that database, as soon as I am geared up and ready to go again, you will be hearing from me. Thank you. Thank you so much for this uh, time. And I'm only rushing off the phone because my phone has no battery power left. But I appreciate you so much, and I appreciate this call, and uh, thank you for being such a wonderful teacher to us all on this call. I greatly appreciate it. Okay, my pleasure, and um, we'll talk again. We'll talk soon. Have a great night. Thank you. All righty. Good night. Bye-bye. I'm down here in the basement with Wisdom. Wisdom is a cat. He is like a big orange Maine Coon. We've had him since 2008. And uh, he's down here with me trying to figure out what we're going to do. And tonight, I am going to introduce some principles of hypnosis. But I'm not going to introduce these principles in a way that will teach you about clinical hypnosis. 
I'm just going to teach you about hypnosis in terms of leaving expectations to your imagination. So in honor of my teacher, Mr. Ron Klein, who is on this podcast, we are going to have a musical hypnosis. This is how you do it. This is how we do it. Are you ready, guys? Okay. Now that melody has no name. I just made it up. There are probably similar melodies out there because all I did was go up and down the scale on an American fife, which is made in nickel by the American Fife Company. Now, here is a penny whistle. Uh, The fife was named Romanus by my son. I don't know why he chose that name, but I kind of like it. Uh, And uh, my daughter's fife or or my daughter's um, penny whistle is made by the Walton Company, and they're they're in Dublin, Ireland, and here's her penny whistle, which is a much gentler instrument than the instrument of war that is the fife. And then, of course, we have the ukulele. The ukulele, this one, is manufactured by Kala. And, uh, let's see. I can't even see. The the data manufacturer has worn off of it because this ukulele has been on my boat with me more times than I can count on my little kayak. What am I going to do with the ukulele is a little different. Uh, Wisdom's looking at me like he's getting a little bored. But what I'm going to do with the ukulele is a little different. I'm just going to start playing some patterns. And talking over them. How are those things related to hypnosis? 
Well, to embellish on my teacher's point, all those patterns were set up to do was bring you along the ride. They were set up to distract you, to enchant you, to give, create an expectation for you. And that is what stories do. And that is what skillful politicians do. Any skilled storyteller is telling you the story in a way that you expect it to be told to you. And that is a form of hypnosis. So much so that Mr. Ron Klein has said that the best hypnotists are those who write books, books, ordinary books like you get out at the library. Because what they're doing, in Mr. Ron Klein's words, is writing a few squiggly lines and all of a sudden you're transported to a whole different world. Music does that. Entertainment does that. Sports does that. And you know what also does that? Distraction. Specifically, an entertainer knows how to keep you entertained. So the most powerful person you can ever have in a political contest is one who will never fail to disappoint you with the next shocking thing that comes out of his mouth. And he does it reliably. And he does it almost without fail. So that's what we're dealing with. And I'm not saying he's a bad person. There are plenty of people who say that. I don't share that opinion. I think he's a person that understands the real politic better than the politicians do. And that makes him a super talent. And it also means that we have to become extremely critical as a society of when people are peddling these particular forms of influence and also when they are employing them instead of making a rhetorical or logical or economic or public safety or military or national security point. In other words, hypnosis is not a substitute for leadership. And yet for four years, going on five, a lot of America has assumed that hypnosis is leadership, which is why my teacher predicted in 2015 that Donald Trump will win the election in 2016, which he did. And I have news for you. Unless the Democrats can learn how to counterpunch as well as the president understands how to distract We better buckle up. So be extremely critical of your hypnosis. Because your hypnosis might just be leading you astray. Or this is just the musings of a guy in the basement with his cat. I don't know. You decide. And thanks for listening.
Desperado. Why don't you come to your senses? They've been out riding fences for so long now. You're a hard one, but I know that you got your reasons. These things that are pleasing you can hurt you somehow. Don't you draw the queen of diamonds, girl. She'll beat you if she's able. You know the queen of hearts is always your best bet. Well, it seems to me some fine things have been laid upon your table. But you always want the ones that you can't get. Desperado. Oh, you ain't getting no younger. Your pain and your hunger, they're driving you on. And freedom, oh, freedom. Well, that's just some people talking. Your prison is walking through this world all alone. Don't your feet get cold in the wintertime? The sky won't snow and the sun won't shine. It's hard to tell the nighttime from the day. You're losing all your highs and lows. Ain't it funny how? The feeling goes away, away, desperado. Why don't you come to your senses? Come down from your fences. Open the gate. It may be raining, but there's a rainbow above you. You better let somebody love you. You better let somebody love you before it's too Hi, Hannah Grace. Hi. We're going to close out this episode of American Unity Radio because when Ron Klein speaks, it's like E.F. EF Hutton. Everybody listens, right? Mm-hmm. And Ron Klein is my mentor, and he's a great friend. Mm-hmm. And so we're just going to say uh, thank you for listening. Say thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. And say thank you, Mr. Ron Klein. Thank you, Mr. Ron Klein. For teaching my daddy. For teaching my daddy. And America. And America. 
how to critically think. How to critically think. How to critically think. There you go. Hey, good job. You're three years old. Say, I'm three. I'm three. Yeah, and you know what? Thanks so much for joining us on American Unity Radio. Uh, Please, let's just make a program together anytime. Uh, And uh, from our family to yours, hope you have a wonderful night and hope you have a great week ahead. And we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.